We're quoting Alfred Korbitsky and George Box in this episode, so you know that the CX Patterns podcast has not yet started going for clickbait. This is Sam Stern from LinkedIn, and I'm talking again with my colleague Kelly Price. This time, we're talking about research for customer journey mapping, why the map is not the territory, and why all models are wrong, but some are useful. And when I'm having that kind of a conversation with Kelly Price, you know we've gone deep on customer journey mapping. By the way, if you're wondering, it was Alfred Korbisky, a 19th century Polish scholar who coined the phrase, the map is not the territory. And it was George Box, a 20th century British statistician who coined the phrase, all models are wrong, some are useful. And of course, neither of these men had customer journey mapping in mind when they coined those phrases. And yet both, both sayings are vital to understanding how best to use customer journey maps in your CX practice. And that is what today's podcast is all about. We're talking with Kelly Price about research for customer journey mapping and some guardrails for uses of those maps once you've created them. Kelly and I talked last time, episode seven of the podcast, about the importance of peaks and ends to how experiences are perceived, and then also how they are remembered. Today, we're sharing more of Kelly and my conversation, how to conduct research with customers, with users to be able to design great peak and ends of experiences. So if you haven't listened to the first episode with Kelly, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that one first. We'll reference some of the peak end experiences today, particularly the MRI machines designed to create better experiences for the patients that have to use them. If you aren't familiar with those designs, Kelly did give a great description uh, in the last episode. Okay. So now I'm going to drop us straight back into the conversation with Kelly, where we are talking about the changes to the designs of MRI machines to make the experience much more approachable for children. Still memorable, but now memorable for being a special adventure rather than a scary trip to the hospital. So Kelly, you've, you've talked about a few examples here that as we talked about them, great implementation from the companies. But what I'm realizing as we were talking about them is if you think about that MRI interaction, knowing that, oh, we can change the inside of the MRI machine when someone's in there, or we can create this this pirate ship experience for, for children. How did they figure that out? And that's where I'm guessing they had to do some research with customers, with potential users of the experience. What would be your recommendation for looking into research with customers, research with users, to start to understand the peaks and the ends of experiences in in ways where you can start to make changes, as as you described earlier? Great question. So the first thing I think is simply asking customers and understanding the memory that they are taking away. That's typically where I personally have started in this type of research and where I have advised others to begin. So if you're thinking about an experience, let's, let's move forward with the going to the doctor theme or going to get an MRI, you'd ask people, like, what do you remember about this? And what point, what jumped out? And you'll get a really good idea about where the peak of the experience is and also the nature of what that memory is that they're taking away. Are they feeling like it was really stressful and that's it? It was really stressful, but X, Y, Z, that, that'll sort of tell you the shape of the experience. Anytime we're doing any research on any type of journey, there's three things that you really want to understand about the customer. There's what did they do? 
What did they interact with? And how did they feel about it? And if you've ever seen an effective representation of an experience and type of map, a lot of times that part of how did they feel is represented in some type of arc of the experience. Where is it peaking? And by starting with this sense of what did people remember versus beginning with trying to get into the step-by-steps of what they did can give us really strong hypotheses of where, you know, sometimes the word is used of moments of truth, moments that matter, peak, like put whatever label on it that you want. But those moments that are really driving the perception that they want to take away, and that gives you a lot of focus as you're digging into more of the details and understanding, okay, this is the memory. How did we get there? Where should we be orienting in terms of what we might want to change or improve within the experience? Yeah, I love that advice. What is remembered about the experience is very translatable into what were the memorable moments of the experience. It's obvious. So that's great advice. And if you're listening to this thinking it sounds like a lot of work, here's one way it's not too, too much work, which is you're actually able to focus in on far fewer moments of the total experience for thinking about this is the moment that is too stressful in that doctor's visit. This is the moment that we have to nail the empathy of the interaction between doctor and patient, let's say, or we have to nail the clarity of communication to the, the parent or the caregiver, if it's a, you know, a child going with their, their parent or their caregiver to the pediatrician. And now suddenly you've shrunk down the amount of work you have to do to fix the experience to a few key moments or to the end. And that gives you a lot less in your portfolio that you have to suddenly tackle and address, which is really helpful. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense in terms of orienting the research around the journey asking them what they remember. That that gives you a lot of clues as to where the peak moments are, how the experience ended. What kind of research modes, like get, getting very tactical here, what kind of research modes are you doing? Is this interviews? Is this walk-alongs? Is they go through a version of the experience? How are you thinking about this? Good question. There's a lot of different ways to understand the experience and you can get super rigorous or more scrappy. I would say in thinking about a qualitative type of understanding, let's say in like an in-person experience, like the one that we have been talking about as an example, I would start with a combination. Actually, I would start with doing interviews of people who had recently gone through the experience to that point of getting a sense of what is the memory that they take away. And then I would complement that by trying to walk through the experience with them to see what's happening moment to moment, to understand those hypotheses around how the memories are formed and what's shaping them with more nuance. And then I would go from there probably into an active kind of co-creation with the customers themselves and thinking about translating what we've understood into hypotheses of what what we might want to change and, and building that experience together. That's obviously distinct from if you're thinking about a you know digital experience where you have more data to work with where, again, if it's an experience where we're looking to create a memory versus something that is more uh, commoditized, like we've been talking about, I probably would still start in the same way. What do you remember? But then we're complementing that more with any of the explicit behavioral analytics that we have of the experience itself start to stitch together to complement with qualitative input of here's what we're seeing is happening going back to those three things, what do people do? What do they feel? What do they interact with? A lot of that can be plugged in from, again, the data that we already have in place, but we still need that qualitative input to understand what it means to people. So I guess the key takeaway of that, right, is that for any experience where we 
want to create a memory or we're trying to neutralize the memory, you're always starting with the same piece of what do people remember about this? And then there's different levers to pull and methods to pull in and types of data based on the experience itself. Listeners, this is why I wanted to interview Kelly on this topic. No notes on that answer. That's beautiful. And I think it's such a great point about the contrast between physical and digital, which the data you have on the digital experience allows you to sort of uh, cut out that second step of the research because you kind of already have that data to say, okay, we know how they feel about it. Now let's look at all that data we have about what actually happened and compare it to what was what was the moment? What page were they on? What step were they in of a process? when they had that feeling of confusion or that feeling of frustration or whatever the feeling was that they described. So I, I, that's a really good point. And I, and I love that, that it still can be the same process, but you have different data. So you're using it in different ways. That makes a lot of sense. That's a fantastic answer, Kelly. And I think it applies much more so to an experience you want to be remembered. But if it's that experience that going back to the beginning of our conversation where you talked about it's much more of one that should be experienced, it should be easy, that's the primary E of the three E's that you want it to be. How would you think about doing research for an experience like that where you really want it to be frictionless and easy and you're not looking maybe as much for moments that will lead to memories? Yes. In those situations, those tend to be sections of an end-to-end journey, pieces of an experience that we want to, again, neutralize as much as possible so it creates space. There is a memory we want to highlight. Going back to, again, the example of a checkout experience that I would argue 99% of the time should not be memorable. If it's memorable, it probably was bad. So if you are evaluating that part of your experience, you're getting much more into the usability of the experience itself. So going through usability testing, testing it against very specific metrics, thinking about the heuristics of that type of experience so that it's going to be easy for someone to enter into it. It's familiar. And measuring against all of that and then assessing how easy or effortless it was at the end. So it's much more about this kind of touch point by touch point interaction and how are we making that as seamless as possible versus something that is more extended if we're thinking about the end-to-end experience and really focusing in on these core points and perhaps not getting into each touch point that's leading up to that, if that makes sense. It does. That's clear and that's great. I think aligning the research methods and approach with the type of experience and what the experience, most important, what the experience means to the customer is fantastic. Great. Kelly? So you and I are both fond of a remembering a phrase related to customer journey mapping, that the map is not the territory. And what that means to me, I'd love to hear what that means to you. But what that means to me is that we map journeys in in order to better understand them and improve the experience for our customers. But if the reality of what's happening in front of us with a particular customer contradicts the map, we must remember that we're dealing with humans and all of their variation, all of their different expectations. And we should trust what's happening in the real world rather than trying to make it conform to the abstracted version of reality that is in our map. And I'm wondering how you think about that in relation to what we've been talking about with peaks and ends of experiences. When do you, when do you see or, or spot moments that maybe are diff, different from how you've sort of devised these experiencing journeys and these remembering journeys? The first thing that that phrase means to me. And I still find myself talking about a lot 
with cross-functional partners. The map, first of all, is not the purpose. And a journey map is just a tool, one of many tools that is one way of representing and articulating an experience. So with that in mind, whatever you're documenting on a map, it's, it's really just a way of articulating what you've learned and trying to help provide some structure to recommendations that you think should be provided based on the research that's been done. So when you say the map isn't the territory, the map is inherently going to be some subset of the, over, of the overarching experience that you have prioritized and decided to document, but it's, it is in no way, shape, or form ever going to be represented of the full world of your customers, and nor is it in and of itself a solution to anything. It's just, it's essentially a documentation tool and the tool to align, align people together. So I think that to your interpretation of this and knowing that a map is never going to be some silver bullet representation of everything that you need to do, nor should it be. Part of managing or kind of straddling this distinction between the experience at large and then the individual experience each people have, I think, has to do with for any interaction, there has to be that space. And you talk about this all the time of like for recognition, particularly in any type of like interaction that's delivered by another person to have the awareness to recognize, like, for example, when those peaks are happening for an individual customer and to have the ability to like serve against that individually and creating the flexibility within the experience to do that. Um, that makes sense to me. And I, I like your point that it, it's, it is often a jumping off point for then actually making those moments, recognizing them, recognizing the opportunity for them, and then leaving it to your humans in those interactions to deliver moments that will be remembered. And it reminds me of another quote. We're talking about the map is not the territory. There's another quote that I like, which is all models are wrong. Some are useful. And a journey map is a model. And yes. it's wrong. It is not reality. But it is useful, especially if you realize its limitations and you use it, as you were just describing as in one example, as a jumping off point for now noticing moments or likely scenarios where your employees can deliver a great experience to a customer or can can fix an experience that's going the wrong way. And I think that's a really nice way to, to think about and to summarize the appropriate use of a journey map in the context of now we're actually going to create these great experiences. It's helped us understand it. We know it's not a perfect representation of reality, but it's good enough that it gives us greater understanding of reality when we see it in our interactions with our customers. Well, Kelly, this has been fantastic. Thank you for joining me to talk about another CX pattern. I appreciate your time and all of your wisdom. Thank you, Sam. As Kelly described it, the research to understand peak and end moments requires you to create, relive, and retell the experience. You want to have the customer go back and tell you what they remember because that is giving you clues about what moments or elements of the experiences are memorable. But then you need to go back and have them relive the experience to show you what they felt or did in the moment. That can be literal, having them walk through it again, or figurative, looking at your data from the experience to understand how it compares to what the customer remembered. And then you want to recreate the experience, understand from their lived experience and their remembered experience what happened, 
What were the dynamics that led to the experience being remembered the way that it was? There's more to it than that, obviously. And Kelly would be the first to say that you should also go back and validate the journey maps you create with customers before making any big decisions. Okay, so now, how is it best to use your journey maps once you've got them? I think it's critical to not mistake them for literal truth. They're representations of reality, summaries, amalgamations. The map is not the territory. And as Kelly and I discussed, that is an important caution to bear in mind as you use your maps. So what should you do? Well, don't throw out your maps. Don't give up on journey map. 100% journey maps are foundational in understanding your customer experience. And the practice of journey mapping is a wonderful way to get to root causes of experience issues. But as you deliver or observe your actual experience and you find a deviation or detour from what your map tells you should be happening, trust reality, not the map. One of the wonderful parts of working in customer experience is that humans are unpredictable, fickle, and forever changing their moods, minds, and expectations. That kind of disposition is why you will find surprises that your maps don't tell you should be there. Trust your eyes more than your maps. But bear in mind that it's not a sign that you need to update your maps. At the aggregate level, they may well still be correct, but they just didn't have it right for that one customer. Maps suffer from limitations, but more importantly, we heighten their weaknesses because we neglect their limitations when we use them. So what are those limitations? Well, fundamentally, maps are models. All models are wrong. Some are useful. Customer journey maps are undoubtedly useful models. Their best use is to create shared understanding of what's happening, generally in your customer's experiences, and then to provide jumping off points, galvanizing action to address the issues represented in the maps, or to capitalize on opportunities identified in the maps, or to set up your employees to deliver great experience moments in periods where we know it's a high value or in a really important moment or set of steps in a process for the customer. We're giving employees, we're giving our teams that kind of information so they can go delight customers, but we're not prescribing an exact experience. Treat maps as models. Use them as jumping off points. If you do that, they're a powerful tool, and that's why they're ubiquitous in the customer experience space. Thanks for listening to the CX Patterns Podcast. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you'll see the newsletter that accompanies each podcast episode and contains all of the details and links that support the information shared during this episode. The newsletter is also a great way to share this episode with someone else. Feedback? This is a podcast about customer experience, so you know I'd love to hear from you. Connect with me on LinkedIn and share your questions, comments, and thoughts. Thanks to my colleague, Emily Tolmer, creating the CX Patterns logo, and to my friends, Moon Island, for their music. That's all for now. I'll be back in two weeks with another customer experience pattern podcast episode. And remember, do not confuse the map in your hand for the actual lay of the land.